we acknowledge the Wajuk people and the wider Noongar community uh, on whose country we conduct our ceremonies and uh, our zazen uh, tonight. May the Buddha speak through and all uh, of these. But please sit comfortably. This is the second of talks on the passions and the way. Uh, the question is, uh, why the passions? Um, and I've been reflecting a little bit on, on that. And, uh, because they are at the core of our life. And uh, form, I think, in imagination, a complex relation with the way. One extreme of that is um, uh, in order to be pure and to purely pursue the way we should cut off the passions. That's the extreme right end of the spectrum. Um, but that's impossible. Uh, a monk asked Chow Cho, what, um, how do we cut off the passions? Uh, Chow Cho said, why cut off the passions? Okay, that's a kind of slightly more comfortable ground, I think, to be uh, in. Also, uh, dealing with the passions, it's a challenge to be present when we're swept up in the intensity of our feelings. Um, often talk about the way presumes a kind of equanimity and peace where our relationship to the world is clear in its unfolding. However, experiencing the way from the perspective of our unruly passions uh, throws up all sorts of challenges uh, to this. And of course, this is exciting to explore. Um, I would start with a few lines from um, Belgian playwright, poet, uh, essayist called uh, Maurice uh, Maeterlinck, who lived from 1862 to 1949 and whose play, Palias and Melisande, formed the basis for Debussy's famous opera of that name. Which you haven't heard it or experienced it, I do recommend to you unreservedly. He wasn't a musician, he said, um, as to music, I'm like a blind man in a museum. Uh, but he could write. And uh, this is a little thing on the passions and something else which is very much like uh, a description of the, the way. Uh, Otello is, marked, uh, is admirably jealous, but it is not perhaps an ancient error to imagine that it is at the moments when this passion or others of equal violence possesses us that we live our truest lives. I have grown to believe that an old man seated in his armchair, waiting patiently with his lamp beside him, giving unconscious ear to all the eternal laws that reign about his house, interpreting without comprehending the silence of doors and windows and the quivering voice of the light, submitting with bent head to the presence of his soul and his destiny, an old man who conceives not that all the powers of his world, like so many heedful servants, are mingling and keeping vigil in his room, 
nor does he, who suspects not that the very sun itself is supporting in space the little table against which he leans, or that every star in heaven and every fibre of the soul are directly concerned in the movement of an eyelid that closes, or a thought that springs to birth. I have grown to believe that he, motionless as he is, uh, does yet live in reality a deeper, more human and more universal than the lover, universal life than the lover who strangles his mistress, the captain who conquers in battle, or the husband who avenges his honour. So such a marvellous dialectic between the passions and something that feels rather like the way in its description. And as Blake put it, um, without contraries there is no progress. So let's progress into the main matter uh, here tonight, which is the passion of pride. Chaucho uh, says the passions are enlightenment. Now there's a con for you. The passions are enlightenment. We get the clearer sense of pride as a passion when we observe it play out in the large by observing it lit up in neon, big picture style, as hubris. There's a great radio program I do recommend to you called the On the Minefield with uh, uh, Walid. Um, I, I can't remember his second name. Come Walid help. Ali. Sorry. Ali. Walid Ali. Well, Walid Ali. Um, and his American friend, whose name I can't remember, um, but it's on Pride, and it says that Pride has its real big meaning when it has a theological. Um, surround. Um, when it's not like that, it is quite different. So we'll start with the kind of theological, the big picture neon, uh, up in neon here, as hubris. Hubris describes a quality of extreme or foolish pride or dangerous overconfidence, often combined with arrogance. The term arrogance comes from the Latin, uh, adragare, meaning to feel to have a right to demand certain attitudes and behaviours from other people, all the while being impervious to their need to be treated with respect or dignity. When we are in hubris, we demand that honour must be conferred by others on us, uh, but we do not offer it in return. Hubris often indicates a loss of contact with reality and an overestimation of one's own competence, accomplishments, or capabilities. C.S. Lewis wrote in uh, his book called Mere Christianity that pride is the anti-God state, the position in which the ego and the self are directly opposed to God. Uh, Lewis wrote, uh, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So there you have it, writ large. Satan, also known as the devil, is a figure in the Abrahamic religions 
that seduces humans into sin or falsehood. In Christianity, he is usually seen as a fallen angel who once possessed great piety and beauty but rebelled against God, who nevertheless, nevertheless allows him temporary power over the fallen world and a host of demons. John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost, features Satan as its main protagonist, a tragic anti-hero destroyed by his own hubris. The poem recreates Satan as a complex character who dares to rebel against the tyranny of God in spite of God's own omnipotence. Satan's uh, credo is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. This is hubris with a vengeance. Seen thus, pride is the original vice, the primary sin. But this can be the case only when there is a large enough scenario in play. In the above instances, a scenario not less than the cosmos itself. Otherwise, pride uh, humbly finds itself nestling among the other passions, mingling comfortably with love and lust and envy, greed and avarice and the rest. Or does it? I think we could regard humor, uh, hubris in political contexts as also deeply destructive. There is also hubris, uh, the, the hubris of our homo sapiens species in assuming that we have control over nature and can plunder it uh, as if it wasn't the perfect embodiment of our true nature uh, and our source of being uh, as it is the source of countless species uh, who inhabit this earth with us. So I think hubris can also play out very large in contexts which are not necessarily fundamentally religious. Well, how do we see pride in terms of the Zen way? Well, in the seventh of the ten grave precepts, we have a precept which, which touches directly on pride. It's the precept of not praising myself while abusing others. In the Jukai ceremony, the words that the assembly chant are, self-nature is subtle and mysterious in the realm of the equitable dharma, not dwelling upon I against you, is called the precept of not praising myself while abusing others. not dwelling upon I against you. Um, we're always comparing I and you. <laughs> uh, we're, we're mostly so caught up in comparing mine, um, always making comparisons, inferior, superior, measuring up, not measuring up. He's better than me, I'm better than her, she's better than me, all, 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 all of that. Um, in, our in our calculations, others don't measure up or we don't measure up. And it's also blatantly dualistic. Uh, not only um, in the dualistic um, fundamental delusion um, 
I am in here and you are out there. But not only that, but I am superior to you and you are inferior to me. You are superior to me, I am inferior to you. Um, yeah, all of that. The cringeworthy, um, uh, uh, very humble, um, they are all superior to me. It's a kind of full of inverted pride and ego. Um, no matter which way you turn things up, uh, you have that. Good to let go of that stuff. It really is possible to live your life without uh, you, noticing when you are doing it is the main way. Um, noticing, and the first line with all of this is noticing and letting go, moving into the next moment. Uh, the next moment is vast, inclusive, um, very freeing. And if the story starts up again, you just notice and let go, let go, let go. Uh, they were Bodhidharma's words in the earlier part there. But we, now we have uh, Dogen's... Uh, oh, first of all, equitable Dharma. Uh, where are we? Self-nature is subtle and mysterious and the realm of the equitable Dharma, not dwelling upon I against you, is called the precept of not praising myself while abusing others. Um, equitable means uh, even-handed, just, Fair, reasonable, impartial, uh, equitable dharma. The candlelight, the night sky, uh, each of us with our own thoughts and feelings, the floor, the mats. There's an ancient metaphor of the way where um, no matter what you put on the scales, um, they always read the same. Uh, <laughs> uh, there is an equal weight. A thought about uh, deep enlightenment is the same weight as a thought about eggs for breakfast. So Dogen writes on this precept, Buddhas and ancestral teachers realise the empty sky and the great earth. When they manifest the noble body, there is neither inside nor outside in emptiness. Inside is an idea. Outside is an idea. When they manifest the Dharma body, there is not even a bit of earth on the ground. It's a wonderful metaphor. <laughs> There's not even a bit of earth on the ground. Completely empty. Completely empty from the beginning. Also no boundary between you and it. In that timeless vastness, there is no room for comparisons at all. Or if you make them, they are all empty. No superior, no inferior, no boss, no underling, no success, no failure. 
Yet we succeed and fail, and we fail to measure up to the standard of others, let alone our own. We all have a sense of self. Uh, we all have ego. It's hard to envisage anything like human life as we know it without these. That said, in measure, letting go of our self-preoccupation, letting go of having to win in all situations at all costs, letting go in order to serve others is the key to living the way in our lives. Zen is never about killing the ego. You can't kill the ego and you shouldn't be trying to. With practice of the way, we are learning to see and to see through those conceptual structures and habits of mind that we call ego. Over time, they turn out to be more transparent than we might have dreamed. How do you do this? Notice that when you're sweating the small, how repetitive that sweating the small is. He said, she said, I feel hurt. That's not just. That's not fair. And on and on with the stories. So after a while, you get to know the stories. You get to recognise the stories. Uh, in some measure, you can let them go. Practice is never perfect. We dream of a perfect practice where we'll never be bothered by that story again. But back it comes. But in what's now a very ancient metaphor, um, after a while the tapes get quieter. You know, also what we consider to be the matter of ego, the faults of mind, the fault lines of character are also lit by the light of the moon. You are, in a way, you are who you are and it is all right. So that, that is also, that is also realisation itself. So we all bring a very particular um, character and style uh, to the table uh, and it is welcome. This is who I am, this is who you are. And in the same breath, we are more than this. And that more than this is also you, yourself. I want to move from pride a little bit into some of the things that are opposites in the way here. Humility is a good example. The word humility comes from the Latin word humilitas, um, which gives us uh, humilis, the adjective, which may be translated as humble, but also grounded or from the earth, uh, since 
those Latin words also derive from humus, earth. So humility, grounded on the earth. Again, it sees Lewis writes that in Christian moral teaching, the opposite of pride is humility. This is popularly illustrated by a phrase wrongly attributed to C.S. Lewis. Humility is thinking less of yourself, but... Uh, sorry, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is very much in the spirit of Zen. That loss of self uh, preoccupation. Another quality which is in the opposite field to pride is modesty. Uh, modesty, that's to say, having the just estimate of our own abilities. Uh, it's a, it, and the running joke on all of this is he's modest and rightly so. Probably in every culture has something like that in play, I would say. Modesty feels a bit less religiously loaded than humility and perhaps a bit more socially apt. Um, in the field of... Uh, pride tends to subtend uh, shame and humiliation. There's a wonderful old Hasidic story... Uh, about riding in a carriage uh, with commendable self-confidence and you feel that the road is flat but subtly unknowingly you are beginning a long climb which continues till you find that you are completely above yourself caught up in your own vainglorious conception of yourself and your achievements mirror, mirror on the wall who is the most beautiful of them all uh, you are of course my dear you know, this kind of stuff. Um, uh, getting your cup um, comeuppance in the talent stakes, the beauty stakes, the deserving stakes is often to experience a humiliating come down. As my mother used to say, you're riding high but you'll come a cropper. Uh, and I, I, I did. <laughs> On many occasions, she was right. Um, that old saying, pride always has a fall. And that fall is usually into shame and humiliation. Uh, humiliation um, is also suggested being brought down to earth as well, a little bit like um, humility. You know, our dojo rituals are very simple and sparse and the space is set so that within this um, orderly uh, simplicity uh, we can get to notice uh, what goes on perhaps um, I speak for myself here my house is very untidy so maybe I don't get to notice so much what goes on but when you come into the dojo and it's set up in this pristine way um, things are evident um, including emotional um, things seem to emerge very clearly um, when we have very simple rituals uh, and we uh, get them wrong uh, and uh, there is shame and we get to uh, see that relationship between um, 
uh, getting something wrong, feeling ashamed, moving on, undertaking to do a little bit better. And there is a training in all of that. It's also a good reminder that we are human. And I love those lines in our cautions, make your mistakes with confidence. Okay. Um, it's good not to be too, too caught up in uh, self-blame and shame. It doesn't help. But the practices encourage us to see um, these unfoldings. Um, yeah, it can also bring out a sense of competitiveness. Um, who's perceived as being close to the teachers? Um, who gets to lead? And like this Sangha relations in Ian Sweetman's immortal phrase, uh, become compete. In that field of competition and comparison, uh, we can get to experience the misery of envy and it can feel like a return to childhood and uh, with that, um, a feel feelings of demoralising shame. So pride and shame are intimately linked. Um, you know, I remember learning the piano with Alice Carrard. I started very late. I would have been probably 20 before I had my first, um, maybe 18 before I had my first piano lesson um, with her. But she spent all her time correcting. Um, I think encouragement is very important, and in her way, she did encourage. But I've told the story many times, but I can't resist it. You know, you, I raised my hands to begin Chopin Polonaise in a yum, but um, but da 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 da, and you lift a hand and she say, "Not like that," because <laughs> she she could already hear the first chord, and that was not the way to approach it. Then she'd sit down and play it amazingly, you know, with a gold-eyed cigarette uh, hanging out of her mouth, and tears streaming from her eyes, from the smoke, perhaps, rather than the emotion. Of but, uh, so that, that sense of correction, of being constantly corrected, um, was actually hugely helpful. So my challenge for the lesson was to get to bar two, <laughs> if I possibly could. And I remember in one lesson she said, <laughs> I was playing Mozart's sonata and she hated the way I played Mozart. And uh, she said, that's right, that's right. She said this up, I was about two by two. So when I got home, I kept playing it over and I was thinking, what did I get right? <laughs> um, but there is something about criticism when it is not, designed to hurt or anything like that, but when it is what it is. And it is like this in the dojo. You, um, you learn, you know, there is correction. Um, it really helps and you grow uh, through it. And there is some pain uh, with that. You know, coming, bringing your car to a doctor, not that way, not that way, not that way, not that way. <laughs> Same point. <laughs>
So there's a great story which I found recently, uh, and this is a story of a woman Zen teacher called um, Moshan uh, Liaran of Ruesha. Uh, she is an extraordinary teacher, and we know so little about her, but we have a couple of dialogues. I just want to read you one dialogue, because this plays with... Uh, with the pride, um, a student, a male student, comes to her, uh, a student of Lin Chi. And um, I, I'm going to do it largely without comment, um, just to give you the, the sense of this. But this is really, really great teaching. And um, so the, the monk, his name is uh, Guan Chi, uh, arrives at her monastery, which is called Mount Mo. Her name is Mo Shan, uh, it's Mo Mountain. And the monk says, the male monk says, if there's someone here who's worthy, I'll stay here. If not, I'll overturn the meditation platform. Mm. He then entered the hall. <laughs> Moshan sent her attendant to query the visitor, saying, your reverence, are you here sightseeing or have you come seeking the Buddha Dharma? Guan Chi said, I, I seek the Dharma. So Moshan sat upon the Dharma seat in the audience room and the monk entered for an interview. Moshan said, Your Reverence, where have you come from today? Guan Chi said, From the intersection on the main road. Moshan said, Why don't you remove your sun hat? Guan Chi didn't answer for some time. Finally, he removed his hat and bowed, saying, uh, What about Mount Mo? What about Moshan? What about you? Moshan said, The peak isn't revealed. Guanchi uh, said, In that case, who is the master uh, of Mount Mo? Who's in charge? Moshan said, without the form of man or woman. Guan Chi shouted, Cats! Then said, why can't it transform itself? That is, why can't it become a man? Moshan said, it's not a god or a demon, so how could it become something else? Guan Chi then submitted to become Moshan's student. He worked as a head gardener for three years. This is probably the only story which I have encountered from the tradition where a male student submits himself to the female teacher. And it's certainly the only story which <laughs> I have read where he also becomes the head gardener at the monastery, which is great. It can't transform. Uh, it's not a god or a demon, so how could it become something else? Um, she points beyond gender to the vastness of true nature itself. Mm. Embodied, 
as her, as woman, um, but vast and without boundaries at all. We talked about the negative aspects of pride and hubris and all of that, but there is also pride in our work, pride in our achievements, pride in our appearance, Taking pride in appearance and work and achievement is deeply related to self-respect. If we don't respect ourselves, we can't expect others to. I'm reminded of the, the words of that great song by Billie Holiday and Arthur Herzog, Jr., God Bless the Child. Uh, it's a beautiful song. I do recommend it. Hugely lovely. But it has the words, mother may have, father may have, but God bless the child that's got her own. That's got her own. And that, that sense relates to self-respect. It's not just uh, uh, empty and full pockets, though that's part of it. But also self-respect. Dignity. Dignity. Pride has powerful social dimensions expressed as uh, proudly black, proudly transgender, proudly gay. Um, these days, to say pride is to invoke gay pride, and that feels like a very good thing and a good change in the culture. There is a vast difference between the pride of oppressed groups as against the pride of the socially privileged. We acknowledge pride uh, as in um, proud to be black, proud to be gay, but I think can rightly despise okay to be white uh, with its white supremacist and neo-Nazi origins. Pride is deeply related to dignity and integrity, both of the individual and the group. Um, James Baldwin, who lived from 1924 to 1987, American novelist, playwright, essayist, poet and activist. He was black and he was also gay. He wrote, and this is directed towards uh, whites, when you, can, when you can truly acknowledge that your people murdered mine, then we can meet and begin to engage. You know, this challenges, but it also invites... meeting on a ground of dignity and integrity. Kant uh, used to make, uh, wrote and emphasised really strongly, we shouldn't treat people as a means to an end, which, which means we shouldn't use them. This fits really well with the Zen way, um, where each person, if you like, is equally vast, equally to be loved, uh, equally a coming Buddha, to quote Arthur Wells' beautiful words. This is equitable dharma too. Yeah, we're all in this together. 
um, we all serve something larger than ourselves. Encouraging others is at the core of teaching, uh, really at the core of life, and we find fulfilment as we disappear into their glory. So I wanted to ask a question. Um, Do you, feel proud, uh, do you feel you can be proud and express your pride? Um, I think this varies uh, with gender, varies from culture to culture. Australia has many cultures, um, and individual to individual. But that business of feeling that you can be proud and express your pride is a very, very interesting, I think. And I wanted to throw that out there and thank you for your attention.